Hello, and welcome to Standing in the Stream, a podcast for and about creative people. I'm your host, John Lane. Jessie Marino is a composer, performer, and media artist. Her work pays attention to the virtuosity of common activities, explores ritualistic absurdity, and delights in the archaeology of recent media. In her compositions, she rigorously scores out sound, physical movement, indicates specific lighting and staging, and works within highly organized time structures in a variety of musical and theatrical formats. Jessie is the co-founder and director of the Experimental Performance Collective On Structure and co-artistic director, composer, and cellist for the New York-based ensemble Pomplemousse. Jessie, welcome to the show. Hey, John. Thanks so much. So I always like to start with a little bit of background. Uh, there's so much to get into with your work, and I'm really interested to, to talk about it. So we'll keep this segment brief. So maybe we can start with this. I saw, I read in your bio that you have an undergrad in cello performance. So I'm wondering how you made the leap to composition and experimental music. Sure, yeah. Um, yep, I did my undergrad in cello performance. I spent, you know, all of those many, many hours in a room the size of a postage stamp, um, you know, learning all the great licks of, of Western classical music. Um, it wasn't my favorite thing, you know. I loved the instrument. I loved producing sound, but I, I really didn't love sitting for so many hours by myself, um, you know, kind of practicing these, like, small snippets of, like, really hard orchestral excerpts. Um, I, that, that wasn't satisfying or nourishing for me. Um, so as a result of feeling a little bit antsy, I joined uh, the, the conservatory that I went to at the time had this great new music ensemble called, called Tactus. Um, and so I joined up with them, and as a result of um, kind of playing with them, I met, um, like, you know, almost all of the composers in the school and developed friendships with them and started performing their music and working very closely with composers. And I loved the process of doing this, of, like, kind of, getting to contribute in a, you know, in a way that was um, alive, that was, you know, actively being created and changed, um, you know, like through the course of conversation or through the course of um, rehearsals or whatever. Um, that was, that was really exciting to me. So I, um, I moved to Berlin after my undergrad and I kind of floated around there for a while, like teaching cello lessons and teaching English and seeing a lot of um, different kinds of music. So the, you know, at, at conservatory, it was still pretty much based in kind of Western, uh, European Western classical music. And when I went to Berlin, I came across um, the Vondelweiser Collective um, oh, and oh, yeah. started performing with them. A lot, and that was just a completely new experience of music making for me, <laughs> and and of experiencing time, and experiencing my body, and my body, my body not only as a cello player, but my body as a performing entity. All of this was like completely transformative to me. At the same time, in Berlin, there was also this um, this outcrop of things that they they were calling um, experimental music theater. Um, and I saw this piece by Georges Apergis, uh, um, the Little Red Riding Hood piece, 
um, which you may or may not know, but I it's it's a it's a fully staged work um, where the actors on stage are actually um, classically trained musicians. They play clarinets and pianos um, and maybe a flute, oboe. Not sure. There's definitely clarinets and p- piano, um, but you know it, it's a you know it was this like very strange. Um, you know, retelling of a classic fairy tale. Um, and it was fully staged and they had built this, uh, you know, scenography and they had costumes and they had lighting and they had ways of moving around the stage and being on the stage with their instruments and also as a character. That was so exciting and, and like, that, you know, completely blew my mind. I'm curious, I want to step back just for a moment, but you mentioned the Vondelweiser collective of composers, and I had uh, discovered them some years ago. So my wife is a trumpeter, and we have a trumpet and percussion duo that we started uh, a couple years ago. And one of the pieces that we started with was the the, uh, composer Jörg Frey has a piece. It's 22 miniatures for uh, trumpet and percussion, and I was totally captivated by that music. So I- I'm sort of curious to know uh, wh- which composers from that group you worked with or, or were introduced to. Yeah, sure. Um, well, I was um, working with actually a funny outcrop of Americans who had been transplanted um, oh. over in, uh, in Berlin at the time. Um, I worked with this... Uh, great vocalist and composer, um, Kirsten Fuchs, who, um, she was kind of the one who introduced me to all of this, this stuff. Again, it was totally new to me. I didn't know anything going into it. Um, and we worked with Antoine Boyger. Um, he wrote us a, a, a number of small pieces that we performed in her apartment, um, in different places in her apartment, like in the very corner of her, of her, um, living room and in her um, bathroom and the audience kind of had to go into the spaces there with us so we were really like we were touching the audience we were touching each other it was very it's extremely uh, as intimate as one could possibly get wow. without moving clothing <laughs> so um and that you know um who else did we work we worked with a guy uh we worked on adam fong's music and thailand susan's music joseph kuderka um, James Orscher, who else? Jörg Frey. Um, we, but we mostly worked on pieces, much in the way that you and your wife came to um, learning about these, you know, this Jörg Frey piece. We we worked on pieces and we worked on well, on them as a kind of duo practice. Um, and then you know we would go and see concerts all the time too. Yeah, great. What was the draw to Berlin? Was there something happening there that you? wanted to be a part of or was Germany in general you wanted to get out or what was the sort of draw there? Um, I had heard that it was a great place for artists to live because it was so cheap and that was really true. <laughs> hmm. uh, you know, I, I grew up in New York and went to college in New York and um, I was a little bit tired of having to constantly, uh, you know, address the real, you know, the real situations of life, which is like, earning enough money to pay rent and buy food and take care of yourself. Yeah. Um, and I was interested to see if it was all true. And I, I showed up, you know, the the visa situation there at the time was that you could show up for three months. And, you know, my intention was to stay for three months, see how I liked it, and then go from there. And I wound up staying for two years. Wow. So, <laughs> yeah. Wow. Um, yeah, it was. it's cheap. Um, it's a vibrant community. Um, you could have a very high standard of living, and you know, I I taught cello lessons and English lessons, but 
I didn't have to work that that much, so I was able to really concentrate on making art, which is, you know, a extremely fortunate time. Wonderful. That sounds terrific. So let's fast forward now and uh, and talk a little bit about um, your work and some, uh, a couple of the groups that you are working with that you uh, co-direct and founded the uh, On Structure. So maybe we mm-hmm. could talk about that and how that group came together as a duo. Yeah, um, On Structure. So my uh, like, I I'm really really glad that you asked about this because it's it's hard to really talk about my work without talking about. Um, the friends that I make it with all the time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and Natasha Deals is, has been a very long time collaborator, one of my best friends. She and I have been working together for the last um, 10 years, actually. On Structure came about because we were living in the same neighborhood and, um, you know, she she and the rest of Pomplamoose, um, Andrew Greenwald at the time and um, composer, uh, performer as well, and um, Dave Broom, they had um, they had been saying like, well, why don't you write a piece? And I was like, well, I don't really know what I would do. I felt very strange about, um, you know, writing for instruments. I didn't really know how they worked. I didn't, you know, I knew what sounds I liked, but I didn't really know how to communicate that well. And, you know, I wound up writing this really awful piece for flute and, and, um, and cymbal that I was just like completely... Uh, turned off by the whole idea of writing music and then I you know I took another stab at it because Natasha and I and still do actually which is a kind of constant source of amusement for us um, we were getting confused for one another almost ever on a daily basis we'd show up to restaurants we'd be walking down the street and you know her food would be delivered to me my food would be delivered to her people would come up to her on the street and say hey Jesse what's going on and, you know <laughs> And this was happening a lot, um, really a lot. And um, I wanted to, like, I don't know why, but I just thought, like, well, I wonder if we could make a piece that, like, is about this funny identity mix-up that we're having. Um, And so I wrote this piece, um, wrote Blau, Red and Blue. Um, And I was thinking back to my time in Berlin and remembering, like, these great pieces that I saw and thinking about pe- people like um, Thierry Demai and George Apergis and being like, well, what, what, what it would be like to make a piece kind of like that? At the time, um, Natasha and Andrew and I were at a residency in, um, in uh, Pennsylvania. And so we had a lot of time working together. And I literally had this like torn off large paper bag. Like I opened up a paper bag because I didn't have any notation paper. And... Um, I wanted a big surface and I just started like making these drawings of like how our bodies would look and then we would stand around at this table, sit around and start like doing these funny things with our hands and moving things around with our heads and making little noises with our mouths and um, and like I kept working on that every day and then at the end of the day we would come in and you know she would come in I'd teach her some new choreography and we'd work on it. Wow. Um, Natasha got really excited about that kind of work as well, and so she started incorporating more movement things um, in her, her own pieces, both for Pomplamoose and for um, this duo on structure that we wound up forming because, you know, we we really like working together as a duo, and at this point there's a really interesting um, 
kind of sub-language that we have. Sometimes we call it the juju, um, which is this kind of like, it's an unspoken communication that we have as a result of having worked together for so long and having, you know, we're really integrated in one another's lives. It's a, it's a relationship that is, you know, extremely precious to me and, and extremely important to the way that, um, that I think about making music. That's beautiful. So I'm sort of curious about this piece because um, maybe maybe you can talk a little bit more about it because this is actually the piece that I uh, of yours that I found first, mm-hmm. and um, I could sort of tell the story. But we had this this group from Austin, line upon line. Uh, Matt Teodori uh, was sort of the the main contact that I had with them, and uh, we brought them to the university. They worked with my students and. You know, and one of the we had like a residency with them, and one of the things that they mentioned or, or was asked as part of one of the discussions that we had with the students was what you know what other groups are they listening to, paying attention to? You know, what are the composers are they are they looking at? And and Matt just rattled off a, a list of people that most of them I had not heard of, mm-hmm. and so it was wonderful. Uh, Ensemble Pomplemousse was one of those, and so you know, I just in the session I was just writing down everything, and and then of course always thinking of you know new composers and new collaborations and people to have on this this show and all such things, and so then I went and found this piece, and I thought it was just delightful uh, and fascinating, and it it draws on you know some some sort of elements that I had seen before and done before like you mentioned the terry uh, demise uh, table music i mean it yeah. has sort of little elements of that it has sort of a, a whimsical mark applebaum kind of vibe to it but it's not either of those things it's very clearly your thing you know uh i just so maybe uh, can you talk about that piece a little bit so uh, maybe the audience can sort of understand a little bit what it is Sure. Um, first, I just want to say I love those line upon line guys, but they're just they they work so hard, and their curiosity has always been like just so. I really admire that um, in in anybody, but it, you know, particularly in in such actively performing musicians, they they are real go getters, and they you know they always want to know what's going on now, what's out what's out there. Yeah, they're just they're just super swell. Yep, absolutely. Swell dude. So anyway, um, yeah, Roadblow. Okay. Um, uh, did you want me to explain? What, what would you like to know more specifically? Well, I, I'm just thinking of people that might be listening to this show that maybe have not heard of this piece or know what it looks like. You can just briefly sort of walk us through what it is. Oh, sure. Okay. Um, so it's these two kind of automatons sitting at a table um, and one's wearing a red wig with matching red glo- red and white gloves uh, one is wearing a blue wig with matching uh, blue and white gloves and um, I put these small like paper fasteners into the tips of the fingers so that when you um, strum your fingers on the table it makes a very loud clicking noise and these two kind of characters are um, going through their kind of daily motions of practicing their uh, their their movements, um, and the entire piece is in unison or in mirrored unison, um, and they uh, do these kinds of you know flipping back and forths of the of, of their hands. They make um, sounds with their mouths. 
but they are all doing it with this um, kind of awareness of the fact that they have to try to do it the same. And I got really um, excited about um, the impossibility of unison, um, which is like, um, that's been a, a real kind of um, theme in a lot of my work. I love that, you know, on a first glance, you can look at it and be like, wow, they're doing it so together. And it's this kind of emblem of virtuosity, you know, the, that the timing is perfect and that the gestures are really matching and that, you know, even our physicality and the way that we look has been kind of muted in a way to resemble one another very strongly. The, the wigs have exact matching structures. The hands of our, you know, our, our hands are covered by these gloves. We're wearing exactly the same types of shirt. And we're sitting at a table which only leaves you with a certain perspective of, of the body as a whole, right? So this idea of unison or near unison or the impossibility of unison is something that you kind of get to uncover if you look at it more closely or on a repeated basis. You know, you get to see the the tiny little way that like one scratches their head differently or um, these like small, um, you know, accidental ways that our own practice of daily life or our own ways that we just don't even really think about using our bodies creep through even when you're trying your hardest to kind of eliminate those things. Um, so yeah, so the, the piece kind of goes through a whole bunch of different movements and gestures and at one point um, the lights go out and uh, I made these silly little um, mouth lamps, I call them. They're just like clear plastic boxes with LEDs strapped to batteries inside of them, and yeah. they illuminate in your mouth and um, clack against your teeth and make a kind of similar sound to the sound of the fingers strumming on the table with the paper fasteners, and um, are just another way of you know illuminating this kind of strange floating head type of a thing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Yeah, it's great. And, and and the other thing that strikes me is that it's it's funny, you know? It's uh it, it's uh it's not funny in the sense of haha funny, but it's whimsical in this way that yeah, sure. that that's one of the things that I really love about your your music and your work is that you have this sort of whimsy and lightness uh about it that that it, it, it's almost it's like a self-awareness or something you know uh, let's not take ourselves so seriously here um it, there's a sort of lightness to it and you, clearly there's a strong personality at work here the sense of humor uh, humor this self-awareness and often you're also bringing in some sort of pop culture references in some of the pieces mm -hmm. or as you like to call it the archaeology of recent media i love that okay. <laughs> you know so a, a title for ex which i couldn't find this piece but it, uh, the title is intriguing captain picard eats a sandwich seductively oh, I, yeah. <laughs> I mean i think i need to see that piece but <laughs> um here's my question here's my question do you find that this sense of humor or, or this lightness, uh, whatever we're calling it, is is a difficult thing to bring to, like, an audience who's there in the context of going to see, like, a new or experimental music concert? Oh, no. People are so happy to get to laugh <laughs> and to feel like they can laugh in, in you know, rather kind of strict um, setting where the the contract of social interaction has a, has a very prescribed method. You sit quietly, you turn your cell phone off, and you clap at the end of things, you know. Yeah. Yeah. So people are really glad to get to, you know, laugh and enjoy and, and, and 
you know, have have a have a reaction, an emotional reaction to, to something. And yeah, I mean, I can't help but to put those sorts of things in there. That's just a part of who I am. And I, you know, I think that fun and having fun and making things that are fun is really important um, to, you know, to to the way that I I want to make art and, and make art with my friends. Ensemble Pomplamoose was just in Hungary playing this great festival called the Transparent Music Festival. And um, we had a, a really great comment after our show from one of the audience members who came up to us and she said, you know, it's, it's great. Um, I really enjoyed it because it's funny, but it's not kidding. And <laughs> That's good. I thought that was a really perfect way of summing it all up. It is funny, but we're taking it very, you know, we, we take ourselves seriously in that we want to deliver it well. We want to be able to do it at the highest level that we can. Right. So we, we rehearse seriously and we, and we really consider things seriously. Like, well, should we do this mo movement like this? Uh, I don't know. It's, a, you know, it's not super visible. You know, we really take care of the way that we organize our concerts and the way that we program and perform these concerts as well. But, you know, at the end of the day, we're human beings who are doing this thing that's music in front of people. Like, what a... <laughs> it's you know it's it's funny it's yeah. funny to be able to get to do all those things and i mean it's it's not without the delight and 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 you know extreme understanding of the the privilege that's behind that as well but you know if you if you can bring a bit of joy and understanding of the fact that you are a really lucky person to be able to do this. Yeah. Um, I think that's, you know, that's, that's a very important thing. Yeah. Well, and of course there's a, a tradition of, of this kind of thing in experimental music. I'm thinking of like John Cage water walk or something where, where yeah. you have to be really, you have to really pay attention and be serious about what you're doing. But at the same time, what you're doing is totally whimsical and can be quite funny to an audience, you know. But Absolutely. If you didn't do it seriously, it wouldn't be funny anymore. Right. So this is this sort of interesting, this whole idea of expectations. You mentioned that, like what an audience's expectation is coming into the rooms. And um, a friend of mine, composer Graham Leak, he, he talks because he uses a lot of humor in his uh, music as well. And one of the things he said that he experimented with was taking his pieces actually into like that sort of environment. So like taking that piece into a comedy club where people were primed to want to laugh and, and they, that were in that, you're talking about social contract. Well, a social contract in a comedy club is you go there to laugh and it, it needs to be funny, you know, but that's sort of more of the, the joke funny that you were talking about. What was his experience bringing it into a comedy club? I'm curious. Oh, oh yeah. So that's, so that's what I was going to say is that the audience was primed to laugh and they thought it was hilarious what he was doing. Oh, so, yeah. it, it, you know, he was doing the same thing that he was doing in his concerts but this audience was just wildly, you know, roaring with laughter when he would do the, you know, op he had a piece with a suitcase or something. I can't remember exactly what it was, but it was, it was basically taking, taking things in and out of a suitcase and, and playing with them. Mm -hmm. That's all it was, you know. And in an, a, a music concert, it, I'm, maybe it got a chuckle or two, you know. But then in the comedy club, people were rolling in the aisles, you know. He said it was amazing the wildly different receptions that he got from one place to another. And, uh, you know, it, it's just sort of an interesting thing to, to think about because, you know, there is that sort of expectation. And I wondered if you had any special way of interacting with the audience before these kinds of pieces to, to open up, to let them know that 
you know, laughter is an acceptable response here, you know? Um, well, you know, I think all responses are acceptable responses. I, it, it, it's not that everybody needs to laugh. And, and certainly there are a lot of people who are kind of, you know, disappointed or, or feel like they haven't been given the experience that they, they were expecting to have and that they, you know, that they paid money to go and see, you know, when they come and see some of my, my pieces, um, you know, because they want to see somebody playing their instrument well and have a kind of like deeply sonic or I, I don't know. I, I think it's all it's all fine. We don't usually prime the audience um, to, you know, feel one way or another. I think it, it's all kind of acceptable. And and the best case scenario is that you create an atmosphere live that allows people to be themselves and to be expectant and accepting of the um, the kinds of things that are currently happening on the stage. You know, one of the things in Pomplamoose that I think is one of our greatest strengths actually is that we have a really wide range of um, aesthetics within the group and every member of the ensemble is both a composer and a performer. Um, Natasha and my pieces have a, a, a good deal in common aesthetically, but she definitely uses instruments um, a, a lot more than I do and I use text a lot more than she does. So there are points of departure there. Andrew Greenwald um, has a you know a extremely strict instrumental practice and a, and a process based and conceptual idea of, of how he constructs his music. But there's no theatricality in it, you know, um, except for the way that we um, pause and create silence in in the piece. And then Dave Broom has like a, a very minimalist approach. Um, and it is also has a kind of um, goofy spirit to a lot of his pieces as well. Um, and Brian Jacobs has been um, making these beautiful um, and super quirky and, again, um, kind of delightful and charming electronic mechanical instruments. So they're, um, they're acoustic instruments that are driven by um, computer-based softwares and things of that nature. So we're still performing them, but he's, like, building these instruments for us to perform on. So there's a wide-ranging aesthetic mm -hmm. palette at any given time and we try to build the concert so that we you know create a sort of narrative as we deliver these pieces and often we try to like make transition music so that the whole show is um, an entire show mm. um, instead of you know peace pause peace pause peace pause the success of that is dependent on whether or not we can sort of recalibrate a little bit in terms of a performative um, uh, posture and um, and help the audience to go from a piece, you know, of mine that, you know, is like a sputtering, spoken, theatrical, unison piece with a chorus of people clapping their hands behind us to a piece that's, uh, you know, a kind of thorny, brittle, crunchy, you know, instrumental exercise in a kind of like, you know, soloit style line drawing, right? So... We have to be able to switch modes, but we have to also somehow figure out a way to transition from one thing to the other. And I don't know. I think that that's the question was about how to prime an audience, and I think well, that uh, the really the question was: Do you set up any sort of expectations that there will be humor or, or people that are coming to? one of your shows sort of know, uh, know what they're in for. Very long-winded way of me saying, no, we don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> okay, great. Well, that's good. Yeah, I mean, it's really interesting that this group with so many 
different, um, unique sort of perspectives on making sound, making music comes together. So maybe we can back up a little bit and you can talk about how this group got together. Sure. Well, um, the group was started by um, Natasha Deals in 2002 and um, Andrew Greenwald um, followed shortly. And it was um, it was a group that came out of their interest of um, kind of uh, putting on, you know, there's a lot of new music groups in, in New York and they were interested in having their own voices and artistic and aesthetic voices heard. They had been performing some of their own music, but also music by other composers, um, also with the composer Rama Gottfried. And as the years went on, um, I met Natasha at a, at a festival in the Czech Republic, and I joined the group in 2005. And, you know, just as a process of us being together, working together, our interests changing, becoming composers, like more, you know, kind of shifting the the focus from performing over to composing a little bit more it kind of organically grew into this into this collective and now um, basically you know every concert we on, only perform our own music so it has a little bit more of a kind of band mentality and yeah, that we yeah. don't really perform the music of other people so often but that's been a really interesting and a really um, fruitful and lucky way of of creating music because the, the thing that we do is we get together to rehearse and, you know, we always come with a score and we come with these ideas, but as a, as a process of working through these things and of having this kind of 10-year friendship and, and musical relationship together, the there's a collaborative element that starts to, um, you know, infuse into the way that we learn and prepare and then eventually perform and record these pieces. So definitely, like, the, the, the driving force is behind whoever piece it is in their concept and the, the way that they notate and want to deliver the piece but you know then it's like a lot of Andrew Greenwald's um, sound worlds for example are from him working with me on uh, you know figuring out these kind of brittle and fragile string techniques or from working with Natasha and figuring out um, multiphonics and kind of extended technique practices that work. We're all just kind of um, we work together and we kind of have a great understanding of what that person might be um, wanting or is missing in their piece um, and can kind of deliver this sort of special package of like, okay, I think what you what you would really want to have is actually this weird thing. It's called the wolf tone. I'm not sure if you've ever heard it. It goes like, you know, and they're like, oh my God, that's exactly the thing that I wanted. How, how did you do that? You know, so there's this kind of constant collaboration and, um, in the way that we develop and rehearse and um, make make the pieces as kind of presentable, performed, presented, uh, you know, pieces. Yeah. Another thing that I would be interested to know, and this is more for, uh, you know, just sort of a practical measure, uh, is how does... Your, both of your groups, on structure and, and Ensemble, uh, Pompol Moose, how do you get performances? Do you work collectively to line things up? Do you have, like, management? How are you, how are you getting gigs? Oh, no, we don't have management. We do it all ourselves. Um, you know, that's one of the things. I mean, well, first of all, I have to say that Natasha Deals does, like, so much of the work, and, like, we're all extremely grateful for the, like, absolute monster you know it's a it's a lot of work to get six people to to 
you know, mobilize. And yeah. she has been doing an incredible job for <laughs> since the beginning. It, it's her baby and she loves, you know, she loves doing the work, but it's also extremely difficult and oftentimes frustrating work, you know, particularly when you're emailing people constantly and they won't email you back. And, you know, that's just that's just how it goes. Yep. But, you know, she's she works with a great amount of heart and energy and like, you know, it's 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 very inspiring, actually. Um, and so we, you know, we one of the great things about working in in a musical world that is as small as it is, right? You know, mm -hmm. this is, we're, we're not talking, you know, thousands and thousands of people. We're talking like maybe a couple thousand people <laughs> that participate in this, in this, you know, neighborhood of, of new music. And, um, but you get to have these wonderful friendships with people and you go somewhere and you meet somebody and you have a beer with them and you talk to them and you ask them questions and they're like, Oh, you're in this group. Oh, I think I've heard of that group. And like, Oh, I think I've heard of your, you program at this venue. I've heard of that venue. Like, Oh, we, we should, we should put something together. So it's, it's all about like, you know, the community thing, you know, the, the kind of good old um, house show mechanism. Yeah. That, yeah. You know, that, it like has a has a really you know big history in the United States with like punk rock and, the, and, and other kind of you know non uh, whatever quote yeah. unquote serious music DIY um, sort of uh, mentality yeah exactly exactly yeah. so mm -hmm. you know we 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 meet people we write to them we ask favors of friends we. Um, we keep writing back and we keep, you know, you write emails to people that you think it's going to be a long shot and then you're surprised if they write you back and you're not surprised if they don't write you back. And But, you know, you just got to keep throwing your hat into the pile and seeing seeing what comes back. And, and you know, and part of that, too, is also, you know, what you experience with Line Upon Line is like when you go somewhere and people ask you about who you're listening to or what's going on and you, you know, you make references to your friends and you, you know, you, you propagate your the community and you're like, yeah, there's this great ensemble, blah, blah, blah. They're doing this work. You should totally have them over it it all goes around in a circle yeah. um, in that way and and i i really like that about the community i really like that, that that it is about a kind of um curiosity of people because there's you know it's not an overwhelming task to kind of know a good deal about what's going on in the community you can really chew on it and understand and always learn more yeah um, and that you know for the most part people are <laughs> you, you know it's not a glamorous lifestyle, you know, where we, people are not always like fighting, you know, for funding or scraps or, or those sorts of things. You know, there's, there are certainly ensembles that don't exist without kind of large funding structures above them. But I think, you know, a good deal of the people that, that we know and that we work with are like, we, we want to do this because we want to make the music. We yeah. want to make it happen. So we'll figure it out. You know, right. we go to Berlin we go to Ackerstadt Palast, and in the middle of, uh, of us setting all the things up, um, a woman is coming through, one of the bookers there is coming through with bags of onions and celery and carrots and chickpeas and makes a huge pot of boiling delicious soup for us to have after the gig so that we can have a hot meal at the end and all sit around a table and chat, you know? Like, yeah. that's the kind of things that I don't think a management company will ever give you that. <laughs> Community, building community. Yeah. And, and you know, that's really what this podcast is all about, too, is making connections and, and talking about the, 
you know, the intersections of different, I mean, it just so happens that we're both uh, in the music uh, world, but many of the people that I talk to are poets or visual artists or lots of different fields and uh, the intersections of that and this was sort of celebrating this creative life, this creative community. So it's it's really been uh, interesting to have this uh, DIY venue, which is the, the podcast, yeah. uh, to get to sort of celebrate this community and I can tell you, I mean, there have been a few collaborations that have come out of just these kinds of conversations as well. I mean, um, so so that's been a really interesting thing and sort of ties into what you were talking about. I, I want to pivot here because we're running close on time and we don't have too much more yeah. time. And I, I definitely want to make sure and, and talk about this point is that, you know, where we are right now, uh, 2017, uh, I wrote a blog post recently uh, about you know, truth and, and where we're at and our American society and the whole socio-political landscape. And, you know, since the election, I've like this insane consumption of news. <laughs> like so many people that I know, uh, we're just hanging on every day. What's what's new? What's happening now? Uh, and we don't have to, you know, rant and rave about what's happening. But I feel like it's definitely something that's in the air. It's sort of the proverbial, like, elephant in the room, you know. Um, and... So, so I guess my question for you, if, if you want to respond, is how do you feel that your own work might change as a result of what's happening in our, in our country? Or, you know, how will you respond to, to what's happening? Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's no doubt that this is, this is an incredibly disturbing and confusing time. But it's also not entirely surprising you know it it didn't just happen this has been you know decades in the making and a lot of social and political undercurrents that have never really been tackled have never really been addressed and get swept away or excused as as a thing that it isn't really and and it's it's not you know it's it's of course alarming and surprising that it did happen, but it's also not. Yeah. <laughs> and we have to understand that that is, we have been living in these beautifully crafted and curated bubbles that we surround ourselves with. And we don't always have conversations with the broader public. And certainly the new music community is definitely both guilty and also partisan to, to those sorts of ways of thinking. I mean, yeah. it's it's yeah. not just about Donald Trump. It's about the fact that we don't have equal, um, you know, gender representation or people of color or there's a lot of conversation happening around that now. And I think that that's great. And I think that, it's, of course, it's necessary, but it's also about the structures that are already in place, right? There was a chat or discussion at um, the Borealis Festival this year um, in Norway that, um, a couple of friends of mine participated in and the the name of the <clears throat> chat was something along the lines I'm not going to get it exactly right but it's like the world is shit so what do we do now and it, it, it was about like well why why the fuck would we make this obtuse experimental music in a time when when this shit is happening right, right like should right. we be should we be putting it aside for a while and focusing in on pure like community efforts and like you know, showing up and like volunteering and making sure that people are hungry and not being deported and are safe and are warm, you know, yeah, like very basics of, of what humans need to, to be human and to be together. And 
there's definitely like that that has been a big refocusing in my own life of like um, you know making calls every day and and um, you know writing letters and and showing up for protests and um, you know and trying to figure out like times in my own schedule when I can go and volunteer or you know saying like okay this concert all the proceeds are going to go to the ACLU or you know making the pro this made a, a, a sheet that that can fit on the back of an eight and a half by eleven piece of paper that has just—it's just a list of, of um, resources and of places where you can go and donate things. And so, on the back of all of our concerts now, we've been printing this list on the back, so people can just have you know straight up list. It's—it's it's not focused in any direction. It's just a list of local and um, governmental agencies that are are know how to fight and are fighting, and frankly, just need money to yeah. keep from fighting. You know. Yeah. That has definitely been a, an urgent and, and necessary recalibration in the way that we're presenting art. And so that's really the thing that I wanted to say is that the composer and performer and theater opera maker, um, Travis Just, who is a part of uh, the collective ob object collection in New York City, in an interview that I was doing with him, he said, it's not, make, it's not about necessarily making political art, it's about making art politically. And that is something that's really stuck to me because while definitely the, because I, I do use a lot of pop culture and a lot of, um, um, you know, world everyday references in, in the musical material that I choose, it has started to creep in just as a result of, you know, being in touch with my surroundings. But I'm not necessarily concerned with making, you know, a political piece in the way that, like, say, somebody like Ted Hearn makes you know these extremely explicit like you know this is an opera about chelsea manning and this is an opera about you know katrina right um you know so but it's about making music politically so again like the you know making a small change like this list of something that goes on the back of a program in lieu of um putting you know composer bios or performer bios and you know you obviously check with everybody to make sure that they're okay with that but you know almost everybody is yeah. cool with that idea. Right. It's also about reaching out to, to but continuing to do the, the things in the ways that we have been doing already. Um, you know, we, we function as a community. We, um, we help to support the community. We work very hard to um, make sure that everybody is taken care of on, on some level. Um, and we try to uh, just keep going in whatever fashion is necessary at the time. You know, the, there's no like, you know, hard, fastened way of doing it. You have to keep recalibrating and seeing what's going on and what's needed at that time, at, you know, at, at the right now time. <laughs> yeah, great. And um, so I don't know. Is that's I think that's where I'm at right now, and certainly like. I, I'm I'm trying very hard, and I'm I'm trying to keep abreast of things in a way, and keep aware of my of changes in my community or or things that are needed right away in the community, so that I can try to show up for those sorts of things. You know, like you have to work within the means that you have and the time frames that you have, but you also have you know we have to reprioritize at this point to make sure that we are available um, in in body and in voice to to you know help out. <laughs> Great, great. That's that's really terrific. Since we're since we're almost out of time here, uh, this seems like the perfect transition to the last question that I always ask, which is, 
how does one live and sustain a creative life? <laughs> yeah, that's, I mean, that's a, I, I, I think that that's a great question and it's, a, it's also a very loaded one because we have a very, we have a, a, a very privileged life, <laughs> a lot of people, I certainly do, I, I feel like I do, um, you know, I've had um, a sweet, like, university gig as a doctoral student for the last four years and I have been you know very lucky to work with the people that I work with and have um, the kinds of financial support that is you know kind of required to be able to make music that is not a lucrative business <laughs> but it wasn't always like that you know and even in the days when I was living in New York and working for jobs and you know doing the hard scramble you know, you just figure out, like, if it's important to you, you figure out a way to do it with the means that you have, you know? So, like, Rote Blau was filmed with my roommate's video camera that he borrowed because he was a, a guy, like, an electrician on a, on a TV studio set. And so his, like, his friend had just, like, a crappy held, handheld camera. And we taped up a black t-shirt that I cut open <laughs> and slapped it onto the wall and I bought everybody a pizza and we we filmed it and you know Natasha you know it's not like I was paying her for rehearsals or anything you know this was just a product of her you know incredibly giving and good nature and and friendship um, and wanting to to you know work on something together and and to you know then rehearse it and, and do all those things, but you know I didn't have money to pay camera guy or somebody to do the the editing or Natasha to even do the rehearsals. I just had friends and they were extremely generous and I tried to you know feedback that generosity in whatever way that I could and that in that time it manifested itself in a full cheese pizza you know <laughs> but that's what i had and you know you got to just um make make it you know the things are not limitations they're just kind of um starting points and so you you go from there and and you <laughs> you you figure out what you have and who you can make it with you know right now yeah and, beautiful and it sounds like uh, for you that 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 community I think it's it, it sort of, uh, I've, as I've been listening to you over this last hour, uh, it seems like community keeps coming up again and again. Uh, and so we, I think we can all sort of think about that in our own places, wherever we are. Uh, you know, I happen to be in rural Huntsville, Texas, <laughs> you know, yeah. but, but uh. tapping into your people and your community, uh, it doesn't necessarily have to be the people that are next door. It could be like what we're doing, we're connecting over, you know, this, the internet and, and finding our people uh, that way and tapping into the community. But it seems to me that I've heard that come up a time and again in our conversation today. So um, it seems like that's a pretty important thing for you. Absolutely. 100%. Couldn't do it without, without the people around me. Right on. Well, Jesse, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you to you, John. It was incredible to meet you and to learn about all, you know, your podcast and, and all of the things that are happening down, even in Texas. Hey, that's right. That's awesome. <laughs> that's so awesome. All right. Thanks so much. Thanks, John. And with that, we conclude this episode of Standing in the Stream, Conversations with Creatives. Again, I'm your host, John Lane. You can follow me on Twitter, at that John Lane. 
You can find the show links and show notes on my website, john-lane.com, and follow the show on Facebook. Simply search for Standing in the Stream. Thanks to Danny Clay for our theme music. You can find him online at dclaymusic.com. I'll be back next time for more conversations with creatives. Thanks for listening.